tonight, the end of an era. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Brian James. General Electric, the iconic American company founded by Thomas Edison back in 1892, in the headlines today in a major way, announcing the company will be splitting into three separate companies. You know, this huge conglomerate, Brian, we kind of forget because they have slowly been selling off piece by piece over the past few years. But everything from appliances to light bulbs to energy to long-term care insurance policies to TV and radio, this company over the year, you know, over the years that they've been in existence have had their fingers in just about everything. Big, huge company. When I started in this industry about 25 years ago, it was referred to as its own mutual fund because of all the different types of things that they were involved in. Like you said, there's everything from light bulbs to dishwashers to long-term care insurance, jet engines, and so forth. So, And that last item is why this is particularly big news locally. So uh, General uh, GE has been in Evendale for a long time, big plant there next to I-75. Let's not forget that they are also now one of the larger tenants of the banks. There's a GE financial office uh, yeah. down there as well, so lots of employees affected by this. A um, little bit a little bit of history. I want to put my Cliff Clavin hat on for a quick second here because I was okay. curious how that plant landed there in the first place. So in 1940, the Wright Aeronautical uh, Company was founded, and they, they are the ones who set up the plant in Lockland, and they made pistons for the B- B-17, B-25, and B-29 bombers. That lasted about five years until the war ended, of course, and then uh, General Electric uh, decided to put the plant there because of its uh, for jet engines because of the proximity to Wright-Patterson and educated people who can build those kinds of things and so forth. So that's how it got there in the first place. Mm. Now the question is, is it going to stay there, right? And I think that tonight, for, for those of you who are really paying close attention to this story, is the biggest question. Of course, General Electric, you know, headquartered out of Boston. So as their CEO, Culp, today announcing that they're going to be divided into three separate companies, right? Healthcare, aviation, and energy. The question in, that no one has the answer to tonight is this company, Aviation, GE Aviation, headquartered here, some 8,000 employees, right? here in the tri-state will they be staying or will they be going and there's really no clear answer right and this is the stage of these types of announcements where there are very far there's far 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 more questions than answers and and this is nothing to panic over but it is something that will occur to people so ge is not going to pull up the stakes overnight and and take that gigantic plant that's been there for 70 80 years and drag it somewhere else that's not going to happen uh you know anytime soon but you could be looking at a situation where the leadership moves. We've seen this recently, right? So Macy's picked yep. up the pulled up the headquarters and, and moved everything back to New York City. Uh, GE itself is headquartered up there, but this is going to be different. General Electric Aviation will be its own company, and will they maintain that leadership here in town, or will they ship it somewhere else? Uh, so those are questions we all kind of have to worry about, uh, but it's nothing, again, to lose sleep over. This is just what businesses have to do in order to stay competitive uh, in this environment. You know, the interesting thing, Brian, is that you've got the healthcare and the energy businesses that will spin off over the next few years, right? So, uh, the healthcare unit will be spun off by 2023, uh, and the energy unit expected to do the same by 24. Um, and, and so the aviation arm is actually the part of the company that will retain that iconic name, right? General Electric. Um, and so, and the CEO, the current CEO, it says, Hey, by the way, that's where I'm going to end up. There is a CEO 
CEO, right, of the aviation unit right now. So I'm sure there's a lot of questions, too, in the upper ranks of how is all of this going to shake out? And, of course, as you mentioned, more answer, more questions than answers tonight. Yeah, and, and so just in terms of some more history, just to kind of go through where that's where that uh, has come from. So GE, again, as we already mentioned, was famous for uh, the, the huge transformation into a you know, into the big company that it was under the under the former CEO of Jack Welch, yep. who was became famous and wrote books about how he built what he built down there. Uh, and it was a huge conglomerate all the way back to the 1980s uh, and the 90s. And don't forget, they they once owned NBC, so they were even in the TV industry as yes. well. Yes. I mean, we talk about how big this company was, and truly, Brian, up until the early 2000s, one of the original members of the Dow, right, those 30 companies that make up the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and when you look at, they were booted out of the Dow in 2018, so just a few years ago, and really kind of when GE sort of hit the skids, right, things started, was uh, the Great Recession, they really never recovered. There was a few bets that they took uh, that ultimately didn't pay off. And when other companies came out of the Great Recession and recovered, GE never sort of regained their footing. And, you, you know, you remember just over the past couple of years, this was this was a rock-solid company known for dividends, right, a dividend-paying stock. Uh, that dividend cut down to a penny. Right. And uh, the, one of the reasons that that happened, ironically, they were so diversified uh, that they were, uh, you know, it felt like a good, solid, safe company for a long time uh, that, that would be standing up for, for a good long time. But the places that they were were the kind of areas that did not fare well during the Great Recession. Right. So if during a recession, people spend less. Well, that means they're not buying dishwashers. They're not buying all that other uh, the, the product based stuff. And it certainly, of course, uh, the, the core of that time was the issues in the financial services industry. And that's really where uh, GE took the largest hits there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the aircraft si- uh, side of things was, was navigated it fairly well, given that that's a slightly more uh, stable industry with regard to recessions. But still, when you have so much money tied up in the financial services side of things, that's where they suffered an awful lot. You're listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55KRC, making sense of the major story coming out of General Electric tonight, that the company will be spun off into three separate companies, um, GE Aviation, of course, being the largest that will remain standing. You know, we talk about how far kind of this company has has changed over the past, you know, 20 years. 20 years ago, it was the world's largest company with a market cap of 400, 400 plus billion dollars. Uh, five years ago, it was hanging on in the top 10 as of this week, there are dozens of companies with bigger market caps in the S&P 500. Um, I, I looked at just over the past 10, 15 years, uh, they're worth about a fifth of what they were before. Like, so this is a company that has just struggled to change. And when you, you know, people talk about large ships, right? Turning around a large ship. Well, that's what these CEOs, you, you mentioned Jack Welch, but Immelt after him and now Culp uh, standing in, you know, I can't imagine taking on a behemoth like this and trying to figure out, okay, h- how do we get this company now onto solid, healthy footing? Right. And when you look at the performance of the stock itself, you can see why this decision was made. So General yeah. Electric went from uh, a high flyer, uh, stalwart company of the Dow, as you mentioned, to since 2009, it's lost about 2% on average. Now, if you think about what the market has done since then, the overall at the same stock time, yeah. market at the same time was up about is averaged 9%. So let alone General Electric lost money. Uh, you could have simply had a 9% annual return just out of the overall stock market. So they managed to lose money in an otherwise healthy environment. So that that resulted in 2018, there was a dividend cut to to just a penny a share. And uh, this year they did, they are trying to address things. They announced a split earlier this year, a one for eight reverse split. And I remember the day when this happened, 
we were on yeah. the radio talking about what that is. It's a little different. That, that's a, a reverse split basically means you now uh, – the, the, so it's a way to prop up the price a little bit. It's still cosmetic. All splits are cosmetic in nature, but it's mm-hmm. a way to make the company look a little bit less like a penny stock. Yeah, and, you know, I think a lot of people, Brian, to your point about the stock, have questions tonight. Maybe you don't work for the company, but you own stock in General Electric. And unfortunately for GE, this is the company that we've kind of held up here on the show over the past several years as Exhibit A, why you don't have too much of your portfolio or all of your investments in an individual company stock, right? Back in 2000, Owning GE stock was a no-brainer. You could not go wrong, right? It was the smartest, safest bet that you could probably make. Fast forward, uh, you know, 20 years later, and, and we've got this company that is absolutely floundering. And so I think the question on a lot of people's minds tonight, Brian, is, okay, I own stock in this company. What does that mean for me? So General Electric is splitting into three companies. And what that means, I mean, th- th- this has just been announced. There's, there's several ways this can go. But, but most likely what this means is if you have one share of General Electric, you will soon have one share of General Electric Aviation and one share of financial and uh, so forth. It'll, it'll simply break up into those companies, and you'll have three different companies where you prior had one. This is pretty common. P&G has done this all the time. So, right, when I, again, when I started in this industry, everybody in the, you know, you could tell somebody was from Cincinnati or their grandparents were from Cincinnati because they had Procter & Gamble shares, and then they had Smuckers, and then a couple other little drips and drabs of things that had been spun off. So this is not really a new thing. It's just how stocks uh, tend to spin off. Now, GE Aviation is uh, itself is, is the most profitable part of GE's business, and we've known this for a long time. So Without a doubt. We're very fortunate in this area to have all those employees supported by by the healthiest part of the company. So, um, well, you think about it, Brian, though. Okay, so last year when this pandemic started, right, GE Aviation and, and the company as a whole laid off what, it was like 20% of their entire workforce because those contracts that were coming in, which, you know, those contracts are worth millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in some cases, uh, those contracts were no longer coming in. People weren't flying. And and so now, luckily, I think the, the economy has turned around so quickly, people are out there traveling again. Those contracts have started to come back in. GE Aviation, which looked like it could be floundering in a major way last year, seems to be on much more solid footing now. Hopefully that continues for the future of General Electric. Yeah, and so so we always want to cut back to, you know, so what do I do? If you are somebody who owns General Electric stock or if you work there, the answer is the same as always. Never have too much of, uh, of any uh, stock, uh, more than 10% of your portfolio tied up in any one stock. Now, General and that's Electric, not right, 10% in GE and 10% in Procter & Gamble and 10% in Kroger. No, total, those individual companies should be no more than 10%. Right, exactly. And, and the, the General Electric isn't uh, their 401k. I've seen it a bunch of times. It's not quite as crazy as some other local companies. I'm looking at you, Procter & Gamble, in terms <laughs> of stuffing it full of company stock. Nobody cares about what Procter & Gamble does because the stock has just been ridiculously good. However, it will hit the headlines very quickly about how much uh, is tied up there. Again, great company, great employees, but that's a little eyebrow raising. GE does not do that. So nobody has too much in their 401k unless they chose to do so on purpose. That said, Figure out how much you're exposed to it, and remember that your 401k is one thing. It's also your job, too. So if something goes wrong, it could take everything with it. To your point, Brian, it is your your current right financial footing uh, when you're getting the paychecks from there, but you're also betting on it for your future, which is why we think diversifying is so incredibly important. Here's a Simply Money point. Dramatic moves like this are what it takes for some companies to just stay afloat these days, even well-established companies like GE. So don't own too many individual stocks. Stick to our rule, no more than 10% of your total portfolio. And if you can't listen to Simply Money every night, subscribe to our weekly podcast, The Best of Simply Money. It's on the iHeart app. 
app or wherever you find your podcasts. If you're a good saver, well, inflation has at least one upside. Ahead in three minutes, find out how much more you can contribute to your 401k next year. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Brian James. Do your high school kids know what they need to know in order to have a good relationship with money? Coming up at 643, how Ohio is making sure that they do. You know, one thing we hate, and I, I hate, hate this, Brian, when it comes to the kinds of accounts you can save for in retirement is that there are limits, right? Like your IRA, you can put no more than, what is it, $6,000 in a year in your 401k, no more than $19,500. And, and, and listen, I get that for a lot of you, even that is a stretch. I totally understand that. But kind of good news, at least right now, when it comes to your 401k, they are raising how much you can put into that 401k for next year. And Brian, this is kind of one of the maybe silver linings of inflation. It is. And uh, again, just like what you said, the reason you hate it is still present here. They're raising it for some of us, but not all of us. So in the past, uh, the, the 401k limit was 19500 in 2021. That is now going up 1000 to 20500 That's the limit for anybody who has a 401k. Uh, if you are over 50, you still have that catch up, but that's mm-hmm. staying flat at 6500 So they do these things, I swear, just to keep us off balance so that we never quite know what we're doing. Why wouldn't we just bump both of them? Anyway, another topic. All the numbers, the IRS, the taxes of it. I know it, it is too much. And I guess what bums me out in all of this is the IRA, the individual retirement account, which for a lot of you who don't have a 401k is one of the main vehicles that you use. Uh, no change next year. So the same high or, you know, the same savings limit on that is going to apply in 2022 that it is in 2021. So, I'll never understand this for the life of me, Brian. I I know that the, you know, I know that the government has reasons, but uh, you know, for for a country that has a retirement epidemic, right? People are struggling to have enough money in retirement to cut off what people can save. Just doesn't make the most sense to me. Right, and that IRA limit is six thousand dollars for uh, everybody under the sun with a thousand dollar catch up if you're fifty or older. That stays the same for twenty two. That's the fourth year in a row that that has remained unchanged. What, so I always wonder, why, why don't they just align these things? If I can put 19 into a 401k, uh, great. But if I can, uh, why can't I do that in an IRA? And the yeah. answer to that is simply that there are two party or two different branches of government that, uh, that, that govern these, these things. And they just think differently, do math differently. So there's nothing going on uh, beyond just normal red tape types of things. I was going to say bureaucratic red tape. That's what it usually comes down to. But listen, if you are one of those people who prioritizes saving, maybe you did max out your 401k this year, um, you know, and you're looking to contribute more. Where else can you put that money? Brian, let's talk about after that 401k is maxed out, where it makes sense to turn to next and put that next dollar. Sure. So when you've maxed out that 19 and a half this year or 20 and a half next year or possibly the 26, if you're- And first of all, we applaud you, right, for being that person. Yes. First of all, big virtual high fives for that. Yes. Uh, We're big fans of that. So uh, the second thing to remember is that that is not, and this is coming, this is hitting the news a little bit. That's actually not the end of what you can put into a 401k. It is possible that you could do what are called after-tax contributions into your 401k. That limit 
The upper absolute uh, limit for including that dollar amount uh, is is fifty eight thousand in twenty twenty one. It will go up to sixty one thousand in twenty twenty two. Now, some people are scratching their heads out there and going, "I don't know what he's talking. I've never heard of that before." Mm-hmm. So, uh, the, there there is the ability if your plan provides it. This is a plan by plan, company by company company option. It has to allow after tax contributions, which is a third flavor of taxation. We all know about pre tax. That's money you put in before taxes, and most of us now know about Roth. I put it in after taxes, meaning I pay taxes now, but I'll never pay taxes again on it. There's a third flavor called after tax, which means I pay taxes on the contributions. However, whatever those contributions earn happens in the pre-tax bucket. So it's kind of a little bit of both. Uh, if, if you take advantage of that, if you've got the ability to do that, then um, then you can get up to $58,000, currently 61000 in 2022. And what's more is it's possible that you could potentially roll those after-tax contributions into a Roth IRA. That is possible as that's something called the mega backdoor IRA rollover. That is possible as we are speaking. It may not be possible over the next couple of weeks because it is part of the uh, the tax uh, the tax reform things that are hitting the that are hitting Congress now as we talk about these infrastructure bills. So complicated stuff, but that is definitely something to look into. Now there are things beyond that we can look at. Of course, one of them being that traditional IRA or the Roth IRA, right? You've maxed out your 401k. You can put up to $6,000 and into one of those accounts every year. Uh, you know, savings limit or income limits on those. So make sure that you understand those. But Brian, I got to tell you, one of the things that I am probably the biggest proponent of, and this is if it makes sense for you, is a health savings account. This is one of the rare things that the government does for you. A gift from Uncle Sam, if you will, triple tax advantage. Uh, and, and so you can put money in tax free. It grows tax-free if you take it out for qualifying health care expenses all of that tax-free of course the major caveat here being that you have to have a high deductible health insurance plan right so that 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 can be a big stumbling block for people so you have to have a high deductible health care plan these health savings accounts were not designed to be retirement accounts they were designed to say hey well we will here's a way to lower the premiums you have to pay for your own health care insurance uh, but you but you'll that means you're going to incur more of the costs so therefore, we will give you a way, a tax advantage to set money aside in order to uh, to pay for those costs out of pocket. So rest assured, you're going to have lower premiums, but you're going to be paying more out of pocket during the, the plan year. Now, if you're a healthy person and you don't need all those dollars, then you get to take advantage of the fact that that money is tax deferred and you can invest that in mutual funds and things similar to your 401k. Uh, most places, if you're going to do this, most places, uh, your HR department is only going to give you generally a bank. It's probably some bank you've never heard of, and it's going to look and act like a bank account. A lot of places you need to take the extra step of after those dollars come out of your paycheck, at some point transferring them to a financial institution. Uh, Fidelity is a, is, a, is a big one around here. Uh, to a financial institution that can hold a health savings account and give you the investment options. So don't don't stop that simply because it's landing in a bank account. See if you can transfer it out. So essentially, there's two ways that you can use a health savings account. One, one is it's like intended purpose, which is you're putting, you know, t- t- you're using tax-free money essentially to pay for your health care expenses. And you can pay for those, of course, as they come up right out of pocket. But if you're healthy, Brian, to your point, and this is not necessarily what these HSAs were intended for originally, but you can essentially send that money forward to retirement. So you're going to pay for your health care expenses out of pocket as you go, right? You have to plan for that. That's not an easy thing. But if it is something that you can cover, you're sending that money forward into retirement. And Brian, you know, almost every investor that we work with at Allworth, at Allworth one of the major things there's a concern about when you get to retirement is how am I going to cover health? care expenses. 
Right. And these are big things. So you, uh, you, while, while you might feel like I'm putting money away that I simply can't touch ever, ever again, remember, you're going to have some kind of health care cost in the future. So Without a doubt. Good tax and you can also to take advantage of. You can also, though, uh, you know, once you reach 65, take that HSA money out. It's kind of a de facto 401k for not health care expenses. You just have to pay taxes on it at that point. Here's the Simply Money point. The end of the year, it is approaching. And while it feels great to have maxed out a 401k, why break your momentum? If you qualify, consider contributing to an IRA or an HSA. Coming up, Zillow officially out of the housing market. So does that mean there's a change looming in real estate? We're going to talk with our local housing expert. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sprovac. You know, we talk about Zillow a lot, especially many of you have probably checked Zillow uh, during these crazy real estate market days. Zillow, if you've been paying attention, though, hasn't been getting such great headlines recently. Joining us to make sense of that is Michelle Sloan, a real estate expert. Of course, you can catch her on here on KRC uh, every Sunday afternoon on uh, Sloan Sells Homes. Michelle, Zillow, uh, first of all, was kind of a, a big threat to realtors there for a while. Uh, not well, so much it, maybe it, anymore. It, are, Zillow, Zillow began, became a broker earlier this year with the intention of purchasing properties, turning around, fixing them up a little bit, and what we know in the industry is flipping. Yeah. So Zillow started this iBuyer program where we could they would buy properties, the company would buy properties through local agents, and then two weeks later put the home back on the market at a much higher price. Okay, this whole thing, really, they're flipping flopped in a big way well michelle so, you, you know, couple- i love i love to get your insight on things because you've been in this industry for so long when you initially even got news right that solo was kind of getting into this part of the real estate business what was your reaction honestly i was a skeptical yeah you know there's always been people in the real estate industry who are tra- trying to disrupt the norm mm-hmm. and it's in every industry right but Zillow has been trying to just shake things up for quite a while now the one thing that I noticed early on as they were buying properties they had to buy properties at inflated prices because there's so much competition out there the market right now and this is not just in the Cincinnati market it's nationwide so nationwide I'm seeing them buy a property for example for two hundred thousand dollars and turning around two weeks later and trying to resell that property for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars Wow. okay people are really smart what changed why is that property worth fifty thousand dollars more now than it was two weeks ago yeah and you know what that came to bite Zillow in the butt in a really big way yeah let's talk about how big in fact that bite was (laughs) well Zillow just in the third quarter alone they lost 330 million dollars they had to lay off 25 percent of their 8,000 employees because they I mean basically they they lost it was not a winning formula like they thought and then they have all of this inventory that they have to try to sell so just a week ago there were 7,000 Zillow homes on the market overpriced and they need to get rid of that inventory because the longer they hold those homes the more money that company is losing yes they need the cash flow for sure you know 
Michelle, you talk about disruptors in, in the real estate industry, and obviously Zillow was a huge player there. You know, you said you were skeptical in the beginning. What's your response now? Well, I, you know, they are a broker and I'm not ever going to say anything bad about another broker. But yeah. at the same time, it's like, you know what they what they do really well is they've got a they do entertainment very well. Real estate for a lot of people. It's entertainment. Yeah. And they are they have a very, very popular. They make a ton of money on their website because they in the past have real estate agents would pay Zillow in order to get leads from them of buyers and sellers who are going on their platform. So now, you know, we've always said, why are you paying your competitor to get leads? You should be able to get leads yourself. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, Zillow has used this proprietary algorithm to find out the value of your home. I'll tell you what, real estate agents hate the Zillow's estimate for the most part. You know, it's just a baseline, but they real people are not going into Zillow and putting in specific information regarding their homes. So if you did a whole bathroom or a kitchen remodel, Zillow doesn't know that information. That's why if you're using a boots on the ground experienced local agent to get the value of your home, it's going to be a heck of a lot more accurate. And that's what they found. They found that their algorithm, if you put it into play, is not as accurate as they originally thought. You're listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55KRC. We are joined by our real estate expert, Michelle Sloan, making sense of what happened with Zillow, uh, you know, buying up thousands and thousands of home, homes across the country and then realizing it didn't go as well as they thought when they were going to flip those houses. You know, Michelle, what do you think the takeaway is? I mean, certainly the takeaway, there's a, a takeaway for you as, as, an, as a realtor, but what about for buyers and sellers out there, people who maybe put stock in that Zestimate? What do you think their takeaway should be? I think the takeaway is always get a second opinion. I mean, buying and selling of your home, the most expensive asset that you have, get a second second opinion. So you may look at what's online. You may see what the auditor has for a value of your home. Again, that's usually not the real property value of your home. If I had to sell it online, not online, but if I had to, you know, put the sign in the yard and do a listing and sell your home, it's not going to be the same as just... Uh, Zillow's estimate or anything. So the bottom line is uh, talk to somebody who truly knows and cares about you and you, what your what your plans are for the future. And local experts, local real estate agents are always going to be better than an online analysis of your home. Now, is the fact that, that Zillow is now in over their head, 7,000 properties to sell nationwide, is that a sign that maybe the market on a national scale is slowing down? Like, should we should we take that away from this? It's interesting. The market itself is still extremely strong, but homes that are sold or listed, rather, at a price that is too high for the home, the neighborhood, the city, the community, whatever. People are so smart. Real estate agents are so smart. You know, it's as if we don't do our homework. Yeah, I can tell you, I know of most of the homes currently on the market in the Mason area. And there's not that many. There's there's literally a handful. So when that home sells and then resells, 
or at least is trying to resell for a really high price, I'm going to want to know because I'm trying to represent my buyer in the best way possible. I want to know, okay, what are we getting for that extra $50,000? Is it truly worth it? So homes are staying on the market a little bit longer if they're priced too high to begin with. Lessons learned from Zillow. Certainly don't learn them yourself the hard way. Great insights tonight from Michelle Sloan, a real estate expert. You've been listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Brian James. Just ahead, your house is a number of things, but don't ever ever think of it as an investment. We will explain why. You know, sometimes something catches our eye that we just have to celebrate. I'm a celebrator, so I can like bust open the champagne tonight because this is something worth celebrating. Um, we rarely feel like schools get it right when they're educating our kids about money, but tonight we are applauding and celebrating the state of Ohio because the state of Ohio is now, Brian, mandating personal finance cl- classes in school. It is about time. Yep. And it's not so much about getting it right or wrong. It's just not doing anything at all. So yeah, what true. we're talking about here, Governor DeWine signed a bill mandating that ev- all high schoolers in the state need to take a one half credit standalone personal finance course before they graduate. This is huge because this hopefully will take some uh, but not all of the pressure off parents to to get their kids uh, some basic background in personal finance. So this happened on October 28th. And that makes Ohio the 10th state in the United States that requires something at the high school level. There, now, there's plenty of schools around that do, uh, you know, do things on their own, but this is mandating it. So, you know, my, my daughter's in Mount Notre Dame, and they have a really cool program that they put the kids through where they have to figure out a budget. They have to pick a career and a college education. What are the student loans going to look like? And then one of the little indicators was here's how much, uh, here's how much uh, apartment or renter's insurance costs. And I thought instantly, okay, cool. They're going to simulate a fire or a break in in your in your apartment. Yeah. So, but really cool stuff because they they really kind of get it down into the into the uh, the the weeds on in terms of the details there. So, uh, this is uh, over six hundred different school districts now are going to have exposure to similar things in Ohio. Yeah, and I wonder truly, like, why why is it taken so long, right, for states to mandate this? Because you know our kids obviously have to learn math, they have to learn language arts, they have to learn science. This is so critical for their lifelong relationship with money. And to your point, Brian, there's a lot of individual schools out there that are doing this right. Nothing against them. You know, your daughter's school, um, my kids gone, have gone through um, Turkey Foot Middle School, and one of the great things that my daughter did, I think this was as a sixth grader, similar course, and, and it's funny too because what the teacher did was she said okay pick what you think you want to major in okay and then what where you want to go to college and then how much that salary will likely make right out of school so here are these kids who are saying you know i think you know being a teacher or a social worker would be great also on a porsche and i want to live in a 10 bedroom house and and this is where they realize okay wait a minute there's a bit of a disconnect there it was truly eye-opening for a lot of these kids so grateful this was a middle school class um you know so applauding ohio and saying listen by the time you graduate you have to have this kind of a class and it's going to look at basic budgeting, you know, opening a bank account. How do you manage student loan debt? Th- those critical things that are important. But, Brian, I don't even think that half of a credit course is enough, right? This has to start in the home. It does. It really does. This shouldn't be a surprise to them. This should this should hopefully give them tools to back up what their parents have been telling them all along. So uh, some things that to talk about with your kids, if they have earned income, if they have a job flipping burgers or, or selling ice cream or whatever, if they get a W-2, yeah. then they can do a Roth IRA. 
Uh, and so those are things that hopefully you know people can get started doing, and these are things that, that, that they've been hearing about, we presume, from their parents. If you're listening to this show, then probably this stuff comes up uh, at the dinner table uh, just looking for opportunities to help your kids get uh, hit the ground running. So these budgeting programs also will put in, at least the one that I saw, will put in the pay-yourself-first notion, which is, yes, here's what you earn doing whatever it is you chose to do. Here's how much is uh, 10% comes off of your uh, to go into your 401k, and then here's taxes, and here's what you have to work with the rest of the day. That was one of the very first things they called out, and I think that's hugely important. Another thing that I that I think is so critical to make sure that your kids understand is how you establish credit, um, you know, and, and how you be responsible with a credit card at the same time. Uh, the famous story of one of my college friends, Brian, who, my gosh, everywhere we went, she dressed amazing, right? I was always like, how does she afford all these clothes, right? We're in college. Well, one night she calls me crying, asks me to come down to her dorm room. She's in a heap in the middle of the floor. She has racked up an eight thousand dollar credit card bill that now she has to tell her parents about right these are the kinds of and and my kids know that story very well because they know hey you have to be so responsible you know you cannot charge anything on that credit card that you cannot afford to pay off on a monthly basis and 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 when you're talking about these things in the home, it's really not just talking the talk. It's walking the walk. Because if you're telling your kids, hey, you have to make smart decisions with money, but you're not modeling that, uh, they're going to pick up on that quickly. And there's a stat that stands out to me. What your kids, like what is ingrained in them about money, right? Their money habits and how they're going to be for the rest of their lives is often in place by the time they're seven years old. Right. So, so, so and, and, uh, the, the, the right time to do this is high school, right? So when, after they're seven, eight years old, that's when they first get the message. But when they hit high school, they're about to hit college. College is when they get exposed to the consumer uh, society that we've become. And I think back to my days at Ohio University, there was always a table right outside Boyd Hall when you headed in for lunch where you could get a free credit card application yep. and they would give you a two liter bottle of pop. Which, if oh. you're a college student, okay, I'll take that all day long. T-shirt, Frisbee, yes. I wonder if that's not connected to how your friend ran up an $8,000 credit card. <laughs> 100%, which is why, right, the credit card industry, like that, they have that crackdown on that. You can't get a credit card at the age of 18. So, parents, you have to be thinking, okay, do I put them on my credit card? And then if I am, like, you know, they're going to be an authorized user. What does that look like for us? These are the conversations that we're having. And, Brian, to your point, yes, when your kids are high schoolers, you know, they need to know these things. But there are age-appropriate conversations that you can have with your kids about, you know, spending, saving, donating, even with just the amount of money that maybe they get from grandparents for their both birthdays at an early age. So I just think it's so important for this education, and these conversations to start in the home. Um, but much applause, right? Celebrating what Ohio has done. Here's the Simply Money point. Um, we're celebrating Ohio tonight for mandating personal finance classes for our children. That kind of learning, though, isn't only important in the classroom. It has to start in the home. Well, we all have that one friend, right, who likes to brag about how much they made when they sold their house. Coming up in three minutes, though, we're going to burst their bubble. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Brian James. You know, you hear about this all the time, right? Someone's bragging about, I paid this amount for this house, and then 10 years later, or whenever you name the time span, I turned around and I sold it for this, and look at this return on the investment. Well, Brian, listen, you and I both own our own homes. I am not anti-owning a home. I'm just anti-looking at that formula and calling it an investment because it just really doesn't work out that way. 
Amy, I was at Lowe's this morning on the way into work today, <laughs> yeah. and I bought one bolt. And then I saw what we were going to be talking about today, and I just thought, you know, how many times have I gone to Lowe's to buy one bolt or a ladder or uh, something else because something else went wrong in the house? So, how Landscaping our- for the outside, mulch, you name it, right? All of those things, cha-ching, cha-ching. Ching. <laughs> it snowballs on us, right? So if you're really going to, what we have in our minds, and I know what I paid for my house, and I know what Zillow says it's worth now, which is astronomically stupid, but just like everything yeah. else. But I can't think of that as I put this much in, and it was there were two transactions, a purchase and a sale. Every year we're maintaining it. Uh, the big things are property taxes. Uh, so remember, you're, you're paying somewhere in the ballpark of probably one and a half to maybe two and a half, almost 3% for your property taxes, depending on where you live. That's just for the right to live there. Right. So that's almost like these wealth taxes that we're talking about. Uh, It's not a wealth tax, but it's kind of the same thing. You didn't sell it. You didn't do anything with it other than sleep in it for for a full year. Congratulations. You have to pay taxes on it. So all of that stuff adds up. And uh, not to mention the idea of uh, of having to uh, spend your time in in addition to the money. What else time is money? What else could you have done with that money? The opportunity cost. I spent it on a house, but I could have got a smaller house and invested it or started a business or whatever. You know, uh, going back to um, Ed Fink, right, who founded Simply Money years ago, this is one of the number one things that he's always harped on. You know, why do we call houses a starter home? Because it makes you feel like the home that you are in when you get started isn't good enough. You know, it's just a home. And it's, you know, plenty of people can live in those homes their entire lives. It's this, to your point, too, kind of this consumer sort of environment that we have of moving up constantly um, kind of tricks us into this. And you're right. You could take that money, you could invest that money, and it could be worth a lot more. So when you look at what you paid for it versus how much you sell it for, and anyone tells you that story, it's worth it to bring this up. Because if any of you out there have kept a ledger all these years of every time you've gone to Lowe's, every time you have paid someone to come in and fix your HVAC, every update that you've done to the house and you add that or subtract that from the price that you paid it well now we're getting a little more realistic here yeah and then one thing we should throw out here too is someday when you sell your home you you might be assessed with a capital gain tax this is not going to happen as soon as you sell it normally the way the rules work is you you move to another house you roll the gain forward it's not a taxable situation but if you ever sell it and move into say a nursing home or something like that where you're not exchanging it into a new home uh, then you might have to pay the capital gains taxes going back to the beginning, which could go back to your first house. So the thing we always recommend is make sure you hang on to those expenses, right? If you finished the basement, if you added a patio, if you built a garage or whatever, that is capital you put into the house, and it is therefore considered part of your investment, and it will reduce those capital gains. However, we're talking about something that's going to happen 30 years from now if it happens at all, so make sure you put those somewhere safe. Yeah. And, you know, we're not anti-buying a home, once again, right? I'm a huge proponent of, I, I, I like the investment in the community. Uh, you know, you think about the memories that you make there with your children and, you know, you invest in a place for your children to grow up 100% for all of those reasons. I think buying and owning a home is a great thing. And I do think there's a lot of people out there, though, who maybe right now can point to renting as something that makes sense. But regardless of the decision that you make, uh, you know, I think our only criticism tonight would be just don't look at the house as solely an investment. And there might be people, right, who sold it this year who made a great amount of money on the house. Yes, not taking into account those extra expenses, but also those people have to turn around and buy a house in this market too. So the investment part of this consideration of this formula, it just isn't there. You've been listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55KRC, the talk station.